Be seated. Well, friends, it's beginning to look a lot like what out there? It is. Everywhere you look, right? The, the signs of Christmas are all around us. The radio stations have been playing it since July, haven't they? <laughs> the mall parking lots are slam-packed full. But really, the sign is Amazon deliveries have doubled at our doorsteps, right? They are everywhere. Trees are in front windows. Window, I mean, lights are hung from roofs. The season that is so beautiful that we anticipate and, and hope for and long for is now here. And today, we are celebrating the first day of Advent as Matt and Angela and the boys and girl, golly now, it's not just the boys, uh, have prepared us. This season of Advent is the season of arrival. Focusing on the arrival of Jesus Christ, our Savior, into the world and remembering and aligning our minds also to think that he will come again, his second arrival. And so this morning, as you think about the arrival of Christmas and Advent and all of that, I want you to think back to me when you were a child and you remember the tree and you were so excited that the tree was up and lights were on it and then presents would start to populate underneath the tree, right? And you would start scouting out which one has my name on it. And then, if you were like me, you first sat beside that present and just dreamed or thought what it could be. And then a day or so of sitting beside it turned into picking it up to see how heavy it is, right? Some of you shook it, and every time you shook it, mom said, well, it may be what? Maybe breakable. And you are trying to get a hint at what could be in that box. Based off its mass, based off of its sound, what could this be? And some of you were such vile and terrible children that you peeled back the tape just a little bit to see what it could be. Or maybe you started checking closets randomly just to see what could be there. But Christmas is this time of mystery and excitement and anticipation, and we want to know what is going to be there, just to get a hint at what Christmas is going to be like. And last week, if you joined us, we looked at the first hint of Christmas. And we looked in Genesis chapter 3 that in the, the, the worst moment in human history, after the eating of the forbidden fruit, after the breaking of relationship with God, that Adam and Eve chose by choosing to eat the fruit, choosing to be their own gods, we see that God, while they are hiding, he is seeking, and he is calling out to them in relationship still, and God makes a promise, even in the midst of curses, God makes a promise that he will bring victory that though Satan may strike the heel, he will strike his head, and that there will be victory found. In the opening pages, we have the hints at Christmas. This morning, I want us to talk about the signs of Christmas, more than eggnog and mistletoe going up, more than mall parking lots or Amazon deliveries. We're looking at the signs of the one that was to come. I want us to get in the mindset of what those first century A.D. Jewish believers would have been looking for. They weren't expecting Christmas, okay? So they didn't decorate trees. They didn't get all excited for that. No, Christmas was actually not even a term used until 10 centuries, a thousand years after Jesus' death. 
And honestly, it was just a convenience uh, choice by shortening the Christ Mass into Christmas. And so around 1038 AD is the first time we even see Christmas as a word. But I'm not wanting to look at necessarily that. I want us to look at what were those Jewish believers looking for, waiting for. So the Jewish believers of Jesus' day were waiting on the Christ. That was the, the Greek term. They were looking for the Christ. In the Hebrew term, they were looking for the Messiah. We want the Christ, the Messiah. Both of those mean the same thing. The anointed one is what we are waiting on. So think back to our time with David. Remember how he was anointed as a teenager to be the king? This is what they are looking for. The one from God that God has chosen to be the king. And we know that they they would have believed that he would have been from the lineage of David as that kingdom will never end. We are looking for the one who will set the world right the one who will push back oppressive Rome, the one who will reign with rule and rule with justice and power, the one who is anointed by God. And so that night in that little town of Bethlehem, it was not at all what they were expecting. See, they were waiting for the anointed one that everybody could see. This is him, the one we've been waiting for. And then Jesus was born in a stable or in a cave, not in a palace. It wasn't what we were expecting. See, they were wishing for a king, and Jesus says, well, my kingdom's not of this world. They were wanting their their nation and their ethnicity and their language group and their tribe to be helped and benefited, but Jesus said, I've come for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, not just the people of Israel. So I want us to think for a moment to contextualize this. The wishes of Israel or the people of Israel did not align with the way of God. The wishes of Israel did not align with the way of God. See, he wasn't about changing their situation with Rome. He was trying to change their situation eternally. And I want you to think before we jump into the text this morning... Are your wishes for this world or your life or that situation more important than the way that God is working in it? Are you, let's say this in a different way, are you putting your expectations up so high that when you come to experience what God has for you, you're disappointed by it because he doesn't meet your expectations of how he should be working right now? What happens when your expectations are not met by your experience? Are you willing to put your wishes in the back seat so that God's way may be? Because if we don't, I will warn you that we will quickly get frustrated, we will be disappointed, we will start doubting and be discouraged. They were wanting the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, to be their king and to rule and reign in this world. And when Jesus comes, it doesn't meet their expectations, or maybe the better way of saying it is, it doesn't match their expectations. We see this most clearly in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke 7 and Matthew 2 today. In Luke chapter 7, we're just going to steal a question 
So we have John the Baptist. And if you remember from the early pages of Luke, John the Baptist was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were a barren couple that was old in age. They should not be having a child, and yet they have John the Baptist, and there is great joy around this, and there is prophecy saying that he will be the one that prepares the way, that he will be the one that speaks of forgiveness of sins and introduces Jesus. And John the Baptist is faithful to his ministry for the kingdom. He, he, is, he is preaching where he is supposed to be preaching. He is preparing the way for the Christ. He understands his role, and he's not trying to go above it. He even calls out Herod, the, the leader of the world there, for his adultery. And as a result of him calling out Herod, he is thrown in prison. And so now you have John the Baptist not getting what he expected. This isn't where I want to be. This isn't where I thought I would be. If the Christ, the Messiah, is going to be victorious, then by proxy, shouldn't I be victorious as well? Why am I sitting here in prison? He was confused. In Luke chapter 7, verse 19, he calls two disciples to him while he is in prison, and he says this, go to Jesus, and he says, ask this question, are you the one that is to come, or shall we look for another? John is just asking or saying, my experience is not meeting my expectations. This is not what I had hoped for for the Messiah. This is not what the Savior is supposed to do. This is not what the Christ is supposed to be doing. Are you actually the one Jesus or should I look for another? We ask this in our own days. Is Jesus really the way, or is this a better option? Is this religion? Is this uh, hope for world, or should we just live however we desire? Is Jesus really worth it, is the question we ask. So this morning, I want us to look, we're going to look probably in the next few weeks at Jesus' answer to John. I just wanted that to be our question and to see it's a biblical question. But I want to look at the signs of who the anointed would be how the anointed would come, what the anointed would do, maybe even when the anointed will be there. So we see first in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah, making a prophecy of God, speaking to the king that day, he says this, Therefore the Lord uh, himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God has told us in the Old Testament that this anointed one, one of the signs of the anointed one would be that he comes from a virgin. The second sign that we're given is in Micah chapter 5. It says, But O you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient, or from old, from ancient days. So he says he will come from a virgin. He will be born in Bethlehem or come from Bethlehem. We know in some other references I'll throw on the screen for you, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he's from the line of David, from Genesis 49, that he's of the tribe of Judah, from uh, Genesis chapter 22 and, verse tw and chapter 12, um, that he is from the line of Abraham. These are the signs of the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And the gospel writers spend lots of time showing us how each of these details are met. 
One glaring omission, though, Jesus tells us where the child will be born, how the child will come through a virgin, of what lineage he will be. But Jesus never tells us when. God never prophesied when. And honestly, that's the question we wish we could answer more than any, right? When, God? Because if you're the Israelites at this time, if, if you are the, the Jewish believers, you are tired of waiting. It's been 400 years since God has spoken aloud to his people. And that is probably 20 or so generations of people. And they have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Way worse than a child waiting for Christmas, right? Waiting and waiting. God, when? When will the Messiah come? When will our hope come? When will you change our circumstance? When will you show up? When will you help? I wonder and I bet that money, but for many, waiting turned into questioning. God, will you show up? God, will you change our circumstance? God, will you help us? God, I am getting tired of waiting. I am exhausted from not yet. I am struggling to keep on hoping. God never told us when. And for you and I in our own faith, oftentimes not having the answer of when is what causes us more doubts than anything else. We need to know when, God. And he says, wait, trust me. Here is what you need to know. He will come from a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem of the line of David. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 2. Because there's some more things that God also tells us. In Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, this, the child has been born, the wise men have visited and given gifts. And then it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take this child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I called my son. Here's another sign. Virgin, Bethlehem, wine of David. Out of Egypt, continuing on. He even told us that there was going to be a massacre of all these children in Jeremiah 31, 15. But it says this in verse 17. It says, then... There's this massacre, and, and Herod is installing all this, and says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by Jeremiah. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. God has told us that this will be the experience at the time, that all these children will be lost. And then, just to add it even more difficulty here, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, we are told that uh, the Christ, the anointed one, will be called a Nazarene. And so look with me at verses 19 and 20. It says, But when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the children and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So he rises, he takes the kid, verse 23, And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, think with me for a second. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't make it more difficult than it needs to be? 
right? If you, in the last 20 years, has tried to help somebody with mathematics, I bet you sat down and you said, why are you grouping and doing... Sorry, Carlin, don't be mad at me about this, all right? <laughs> yeah, you teach it. Yes, it's good. All right, no. Chelsea, you can fight. Y'all two can fight me later about this. No. But at some point, you're like, guys, you just need to know 8 plus 4 is 12. I don't need you to have 10 blocks here and 2 blocks here and all of this sort of stuff. We just got to know 8 plus 4 is 12. It is 12, it is 12, it is 12, right? Allison, as you're you know, working through all that, tell them that, right? 8 plus 4 is 12. We don't need to make it more difficult than it needs to be. <laughs> I think God's just playing with us at times, going, let me show you. Think about this. A virgin birth, impossible. Bethlehem, highly unlikely. From the line of David, quite limiting. From the tribe of Judah, even more limiting. Oh, and then I'm going to send him to Egypt, and he's going to be called a Nazarene. I bet nobody else had that many stamps on their passport as Jesus did. Everything that God predicted and prophesied and promised about the anointed one came true. And he didn't keep it simple. If we would have just said, oh yeah, somebody born in Bethlehem, well, every child in Bethlehem could have potentially been on that. No. God laid out clear signs of who the anointed one would be. And he checked every box. Can you imagine what this is showing us? It, it, it is showing to me that God perfectly orchestrates his plan in our world. God perfectly orchestrates his plan in our world. 700 years before Jesus was born, he was telling Isaiah. 700 years before Bethlehem knew that they would become the birthplace of the king, he was predicting it to Micah. A thousand years before Jesus was born, King David heard this hope. Friends, our God perfectly works in our world. I have three really simple points. I very rarely have points. I have them today, and they're not spectacular, but that's what we need to hear. We're going to get into later what Jesus did and why he did it and all of that, but here's what I need you to stop at today. Stop and stay in awe of our God who perfectly works in our world. Why? Because the first thing it tells us, God is in control. He's in control. You cannot read the birth story of Jesus and not realize that God is in complete control the whole time. And you know what? If God is in control, you don't have to be. If you're like me, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders constantly. You feel like you have to solve every problem, fix every issue, that you have no time to stop because there's always somebody needing you for something. It's why we struggle with the concept of Sabbath so much. How can I stop one out of seven days? There's no way. I can't do that. I mean, laundry needs to be folded. The kitchen needs to be clean. Groceries are missing from the pantry. The boss needs that report. We can't stop. And what we're reading here is, and what we are reminded of this morning is that God is in control. And if he is in control, that doesn't mean that we're passive or apathetic, but here's what it means. That 
if we are faithful to him and obedient to him, we can rest with the results. If God is in control and I am obeying him, then whatever I experience, no matter if that's what I expected or not, whatever I experience is his way. God is in control, friends. You don't have to be. We couldn't have scripted this story. and I mean, I could not have come up with a way to get a child from Bethlehem due to a census, a genocide, get him to Egypt, return to a different city of Nazareth. There's no way we could have scripted that. And yet God works through very logical means and uses our world to accomplish his plans. The second thing I need you to see this morning, again, groundbreaking truth here. God's promises are true. And you can trust him. Every single promise, prophecy, statement he made about the anointed one happened. Again, if we laid it out and said, we would have given this a 99.9% chance of there's no way this is going to happen, and yet it did. What does it mean? His promises are true. That means you can trust him. And God has made promises to you. He has promised his presence to you even when you feel alone. He has promised peace for you, though you feel shaken. He has promised help when you're hurting. He has promised power to overcome this world. He has promised direction when you feel you're just wandering around. He has promised comfort when you feel inconsolable. He has promised you rest when you are burdened and weary and heavy laden. He has promised you grace even when you sin. And he has promised you that he is working even if you don't see it. Friends, God's promises are true. May that lead you to trust him. Finally, another groundbreaking, earth-shattering, you know, uh, point here. God loves you. You can believe it. I said last week, Christmas is the story of our God stepping into our world to save us from our sin. Our God stepping into our world to save us from our sin. Only because of God's great love, his great mercy, his great grace, would he become flesh, dwell among us, die for us, and pay our debt so that we can raise to be with him forever. We know a lot about the signs of the coming of the anointed one, but I want to give you as we close up, I want to give you signs of the end of his life as well. See, God spoke a lot about what the anointed one, how he would come, what he would do, and how he would end. Preparing for that ending, it said in Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. He will be coming humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And we remember at that triumphal entry to the parade chorus of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. We see Jesus riding on that adolescent donkey. But what does it say? Here are some references. I'll, Kennedy will have them on the screen. And I can always give these to you later if you ever want to do a deeper study. But here's the signs that God told us of the anointed. The anointed one, the Christ, will be betrayed. Psalm 41.9. He'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 
12. He'll be spat upon and beaten, Isaiah 50, verse 6. His hands and his feet will be pierced, Psalm 22, 16. He will be, they will gamble for his clothes, Psalm 22, 18. He, he will, his bones will be, or he will be beaten, but his bones will not be broken, Psalm 34, 20. He will be killed as a sacrifice for sins, Isaiah 53, 5 through 12. And yet he will rise again, Psalm 49, 15. And in Jesus' own words, he says it in Mark chapter 30, I mean chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Friends, why do I bring up these signs of God or of the anointed? Because I need us today to sit in awe of our God. In awe of his sovereign rule in our world, in all of his great love for us, in all of the way that he has perfectly orchestrated his story for our salvation. So, why do we sit in this today? I think John says it best in his gospel at the end, chapter 20, verse 31. He says, There's a lot more I could have written to you, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the sent one of God, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Luke starts off his gospel in verse 4. He says, I've written these things so you may have certainty of the things that you have been taught. Friends, these signs of the Christ that we have looked at today are to help us to know, to help us to believe, to help us to trust, to help us to celebrate that what God promised he accomplished, to give us hope that no matter our circumstance, he is true and he is real and he is working. Our expectations may not all be being met right now, but it doesn't mean our experience is wrong. John the Baptist asked, Are you the one, or shall we look for another? As we've looked at the scriptures today, I feel like it is a resounding answer. Jesus is absolutely the one. And we need to respond to that. So I'll end with this. Jesus, friends, is the one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. He is the hope of Israel and the hope of all of us. He is the Savior of the world, the defeater of sin, the overcomer of death, the deliverer of sinners, the payment for our sin, and the only way to life with God. Jesus is the one, the promised one from decades and centuries of old. And he is the one that I promise you will change your life.